start. Piki mai kake mai, welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Ballett's a ho. Tonight we're heading to the Kapiti Coast, north of Wellington, to mark Conservation Week. We'll meet some enthusiastic volunteers who've joined together for a project called Increasing Biodiversity Through Community Action in the Real World. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, so it also gets called the Kapiti Coast Biodiversity Project. It brings together existing groups such as Friends of Queen Elizabeth Park, the Guardians of Whareroa and Nga Uruora, and last year it was awarded $300,000 from the Ministry for the Environment. We're going to be hearing about everything from restoring rare sand dune plants, trapping for predators, wetter houses, and a whole lot of other stuff. The project was the brainchild of the late John Lancashire, and Paul Callister kicks off our Carpety Coast Conservation Tour by telling us a bit about John's inspiration. John Lancashire was the visionary person, and so he wanted to create biodiversity in areas where we w lived, worked and played. And he was getting very frustrated that we were continually planting trees, but we didn't know actually what was living in those trees, what was living in the, the rivers and such like. So he was very concerned about biodiversity decline. He was a scientist, but he was also an activist. And so he pushed people to, to go in a new directions. So he had the vision about putting together this project. What we thought is that we've got Kapiti itself offshore, and it's about 2,000 hectares. And many of us have been over there, of course, and we just think it's absolutely fabulous with the biodiversity, you know, the amazing bird song and lizards and everything. And so we thought, well, we'll try and create a parallel mainland island over here. So that's why we've called it the Kapiti Mainland Island. And, and in one sense, it's probably technically not a, a mainland island in the strictest sense, but what we see it as is, is an area where, through intense management, we can keep the, the number of um, predators down. Now, of course, various other people have said, well, why don't we create a Kapiti Mana mainland island, because we've got Mana Island at the other end. And so now we're talking with Plymouthan people, Pukarua Bay people, and making it larger. And Can so, I take over the coast? Yeah, well, we originally had this idea that, you know, there's bird corridors going across to the Hutt Valley. You know, Kaka, Kakariki are going to come up from Wellington. They're possibly going to come across from Kapiti Island and Mana Island. So... You know, we, we really want to get these birds back um, in the areas where we do live in. Great. Well, let's go and have a look at some of the trapping that you're doing around here and talk a bit more about that. Sure. Oh, hello. I'm Michael Stace, and uh, that's my dog, Nelly, over there. Who's hello, dog. Out. So what have we got here, Michael? The, the Dog 200, which is a standard stoat trap. We have a, a domestic mouse trap as well because uh, mice, we realise, are the problem for no other reason they eat lizards and uh, there is a scarcity of lizards in Queen Elizabeth Park. So you run the trap line here in Queen Elizabeth Park? There's uh, a total of 180 Dock 200 traps. Uh, we've also got about 20 Tim's traps for possums and 20 A24s, the good nature traps, which have just gone in. And the aim of the A24s are rats and mice. Uh, the Dock 200s catch mustards and rats. So how often do you come and check these? Every two weeks between uh, January and June and every three weeks between July and December. And are you catching a lot or have you managed to get rid of most things? I'd like to think we're holding our own. Uh, 
the numbers haven't gone down as much as I would have liked them to have gone down, but they're not increasing. So what kind of numbers of things are you catching there? 59 stoats, 276 weasels, 849 rats, 531 hedgehogs, 1,420 mice and 23 possums. Possums are not a problem in Queensworth Park. One of the things about this project is we're trying to use a lot of new technology, the good nature traps and such like, and we're doing things like tracking tunnels um, to see what little feet are running around. But one of the innovative things we've been using is, is motion cameras in the bush. And so we've been putting a lot of those out and we've discovered there's more out there than we, we realise, especially cats. And so cats is going to be a sort of a, a big question mark as to what we do in the next couple of years. So we've started with possums and then we realise the whole world's a problem. <laughs> so we've got to kill everything, which is unfortunate. It's very much experimental stage, so we can put out all our trapping lines and we can sort of work out whether we can get enough volunteers to maintain them, but we're really concerned about sort of increasing our productivity. And so that's probably the, the old economist to me coming out that, you know, I'm thinking about capital labour, all those sort of things. But we've got an ageing workforce here. It is hard to get um, people to go out into some of the really steep areas and such like. So we've really got to think, you know, ways of, of improving this. So the good nature traps are, are one way of doing it. They're self-setting and so we have to go out less. We're just starting an experiment with remote sensing of traps so we can find out whether they go off. So we'll have a little Wi-Fi network in the bush and if the trap goes off then it will fire a signal out to the internet. And that's a collaborative project between um, Glenfern Sanctuary and Great Barrier Island, um, Ground Truth and Paikokariki who developed TrapDoc NZ. And so we're going to do that in the next few weeks and, and get that out into the bush. We don't know how that will work, but a lot of this is, is experimental. And we're sort of, we know we're at the cusp of a lot of new technology. And so it's, it's complicated for groups of thinking, you know, do you invest in a lot of um, things like Doc 200s? Do you go to the good nature traps? Do you wait a little bit longer and, and see what's around the corner? So I, I think we are making progress in certain areas, but in terms you know, of a holistic thing, um, the more we learn about it, the more you know, questions we have, basically. And, you know, one of our aspirational goals is to bring Kākāriki back to Pākākāriki. You know, we, we want to live up to the name, so, you know, one day we'll get there, but we've, it's, it's a long process. Hi, I'm Stephen Whitten. My role in the project is with the Rare Dune group, and we're looking primarily at the rare plants in the sand dune area. So the first plant of interest is the shore Caprosma, um, Caprosma acerosa. It's a divericating, low-growing, um, mounding shrub. Beautiful orange stems, but not a lot in the way of leaves. No, not at all. Like all Caprosmas, they're either male or female, and for the plants to be sustainable as a population, there needs to be males and females reasonably close to each other. The rain sounds like it's giving us a break in the weather, so should we go and have a look at the dunes? Yes, let's. So here we have a very steep sand dune, the waves crashing down below. I can see why you're losing a bit of your coast here. Yeah, because of the amount of vegetation and because the sea is eroding into the sand dunes. The sand dunes here at Queen Elizabeth Park are very, very steep. So we've got Caprosma acerosa, as you can see right here, right hanging on the edge. And um, I think you can probably see further down the sand dune where it's eroded and fallen away in a recent storm. There is part of the plant acerosa is down there 
clearly there, but but well and truly dead. So and you're just in time. We're just in time. We hope we're just in time. Yeah. Um, last year, one of the storm events did take away some of the population of both the male and the female. And so we really have to get plants in behind these as soon as possible, um, or else this population is extinct in this area. So this is the male plant? This is the male plant. Um, at this time of the year, when there's no fruit, no flowers, they look identical. But it's a reasonable sized patch of it here. Yeah, so it goes all the way up here. Um, and then right up over on top of this grassy knoll. So a few um, metres of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the male probably covers um, at least 20 metres square. It's a big patch. This is a plant that um, suckers from the roots. So this could represent multiple plants, but more than likely it probably only represents one genetic entity. Otherwise we, I would have been able to find males and females together, but because it's one male, and the other patch is one female, and we know they sucker and grow and establish over large areas, we could be looking at two individuals. Now, how far away is the female? The female is probably uh, 150 metres straight down the coast. So the chances of this male plant being able to fertilise the flowers of that female plant, that's pretty slim, I would have thought. Um, no, they're wind-pollinated, and they produce a massive amount of pollen, and, you know, there's a lot of wind here. So um, that kind of distance is probably not too bad. But for the population to be sustainable, we need some genetic input from other beaches like up in Otaki and Waitariri, and we need more plants. And we need males in behind the female and females in behind the male, um, and we just need to spread out from these two zones. So what's your vision for these dunes? What's it going to look like in, I don't know, 50 years' time? It'll be a matter of how far in it erodes and whether or not we can establish some plants that should be here um, and we can get those populations established and, um, and starting to actually breed themselves. That would be the real test of whether what we do is actually working. Yeah. Well, I'd have to say we timed our run out to the dunes with exquisite precision. Indeed it's now you pouring did. with rain and we're back in the nursery shed. So what else have you got here on the table? Sure, bitty bit. So that's what we've got here in this plug tray. They're looking and a little parsley-like at the moment. They, they, they do, don't they? <laughs> um, and, uh, and this is a plant that spreads with long runners, um, will grow quite happily in open sand country, and they produce masses and masses of upright uh, seed pods that, are, that then um, attach themselves to people's dogs. So oh, some people, I was going to say, so they do stick to your socks and your yeah, dogs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, some people who walk their dogs may not be very happy with me in the future, but this is a plant that should be there. And during my survey, I only found one very small patch of it. Um, the, the divericating shrub at the back, this is um, Carochia cotoniaster. A lot of people will recognise from um, their garden areas. And these are a plant that provide really good habitat for large invertebrates, sight stick insects and wetters, um, and a good amount of food for you know, the geckos, um, should any sort of start becoming prevalent in the, in the sand dunes. Well, it'll be great to come back in a few years' time and hopefully see some of these growing well and starting to cover the ground a little bit. Yeah, it will be cool. As with all of our projects, um, one of the most important things is predator control. Um, out in those sand dunes, there's almost no geckos and lizards, which indicates there's probably lots of rats and mice. Um, and the rats and mice, well, they'll eat the, uh, the mice particularly, will eat the fruit of Caprosma acerosa. It's quite possible they actually consume the seed rather than just swallow it. So you want um, those reptiles to actually be spreading the seeds for you? Yeah, I would. I'd love them. And I love geckos. And skinks and geckos, they um, use Caprosma acerosa as a, as a place to live. 
Um, they're not animals that move particularly far from their, um, their home site. And, uh, and so it's a matter of getting um, plants like Caprosma acerosa reasonably close to each other and, and, um, and then they can hide in it and live in it and feed from it. My name's Gay Hay and I am the lizard leader for the Biodiversity Project. Now you're the one person I'm not dragging outside to go and talk about your project because it's the middle of winter, which is not a great time for no, reptiles, is it? No, lizards are hiding. And we normally go and do our survey February, March. Mm. So what kind of lizards are you interested in? Anything. And that's been the probably the basis of this project, is finding out what is out there. And so we set up a project with Echo Gecko to do a survey to collect additional data and we found one, one grass skink after a whole week of survey with volunteers out every morning searching. But it was a good learning curve because it told us they're not there. So the question had to be asked, why are they not there? What we found was evidence of lots of mice. So the mice have been the, the problem. Mm. So damn those mice. And so we're going to relocate. We'll have another site up higher at Whararoa Farm. And they've had trapping in place for a lot longer than they have here at Kiwi Park. And then our biggest project will move to the escarpment. And that's quite good because with the TRO track going through there now, it's a lot easier for us to get up and find these lovely rocky scree slopes and hopefully find lizards hiding there. And lizards are such an indicator of the health of the environment. And I hadn't realised that they were so important in the seed dispersal. Um, and when you look at the little berries on the Mulembekia that shine with the moon and that lovely glistening pearl, you know, that's perfect food for little lizards to gobble up and off they scamper and whoops here's the next Mulembeke growing so no wonder we've got lots of them on the escarpment and cliff faces. Mm. I'm Jan, Jan Nisbet and I'm the leader of the wetter teams and why am I the leader of the wetter teams? Because I just said to the person John who was putting the program together, the project together, what about the wetters? And he said well, would you like to do it? And I go, okay. <laughs> so you've become the wet person. Now, where have you brought me? I've brought you into a piece of bush on Whariroa Farm Reserve, which is the Koe Koe bush. And we've got wetters in a whole range of environments throughout the project. So we've got some in the Koe Koe bush. We've got some over in Matai bush, which has got more of those sort of trees. And over on Queen Elizabeth Park, I've got some in little groves and some in uh, Manuka and some in the old remnant bush. And so we've got a whole variation of different environments with these wetter houses. And what we're doing is we're trying to see what sort of wetter count there is. Now, people can probably hear the raindrops falling on the umbrella, so it is a little damp. So here, tied to a tree, is something that you're going to describe for me, please. Well, for those of us who went to school a number of years ago and we had pencil cases, wooden pencil cases, it's like a wooden pencil case, got a bottom compartment and a top compartment and there's holes on either side that go into those and here the wet is, this is one of the interesting things about this project is it's pure chance that the wetters will find these holes. 
Oh, there's a few in the bottom. There's about three in that. And it's all legs and antennae, isn't it? Yes. So these are Wellington tree wetters, aren't they? These are Wellington tree wetters. But we also sometimes get um, cave wetters in here. And what we're doing is we put these up at the end of November and we... Our project at the moment is merely to monthly count them. And so we're going to see if there is a trend of more wetters. We hope there will be because uh, we've been trapping possums for about three years, which is one of the reasons why we've got such beautiful koe koe. Uh, but we've started trapping rats as well. <laughs> but it's a bit hard to know whether they're actually increasing in number. And they only live for about two and a half years and then they lay their eggs and it's all over over. But what you're hoping is that they will be an indicator species for you to show how effective that rat trapping is. That's what I understand. There's all sorts of ways you can um, sort of find out about your invertebrate population, but apparently seeing what your wetter population is like, as you say, indicator species, yeah. So that's, I didn't know anything about wetters before I started this, other than that they were ug ugly and people were scared of them. But I've learnt to love them, and I think they, do, they get such bad press. They, they, they've been around for millions of years. They've outlived the dinosaurs. They were around when the dinosaurs, and if they didn't get squashed by a dinosaur, you know, they're still here. It's really exciting. I'm Sue Blakey. I'm a vet from Raumati Beach, and my role in the biodiversity project is the leader of the bird strand, monitoring the bird counts. We're using the five-minute bird count method because it's a tried-and-true Kiwi monitoring method. Um, and we have some data from five years ago which we can look at as well in conjunction with the project. If we were doing a bird count right now, and it is a bit wet and windy, I can hear a tui making beautiful noises. Have you heard anything else? Yes, indeed. It's mainly tui song. They're drowning out everyone else. So what other kinds of native species are you actually seeing and hearing? Kingfisher, pukeko, fantail, the occasional uh, rero rero, the occasional bellbirds. So you're hoping that as the trapping rolls on, there'll be fewer predators, that'll help the bird numbers. As the revegetation rolls on, well, is that going to improve the diversity of food for the birds? Yes, yes. So there'll be... Uh, we hope, you know, more likelihood, much more likelihood of food availability all the year round and greater quantities of it. Now, as well as doing these bird counts, you're also giving a bit of a helping hand. I've already heard about wetter houses on this project, but am I right in thinking you're putting penguin houses in as well? Yes, yes. Should we go and have a look at some of those? Have you got something you can show me? Let's do that. So now we've changed location. We're at the beach instead of in the bush and well, a few tens of metres back from the beach there's some flax bushes and you're pointing at a penguin nest box tucked in underneath. So what's the thinking behind the nest boxes? Why have you decided to put them where you have? The nest boxes were placed um, in small clusters because penguins like to be in groups with each other and well tucked away. So we've tried to place the boxes in areas where penguins would be drawn towards looking for a burrow or making a natural burrow of their own. So what do you know about blue penguin numbers along this bit of coast? Between Pukarua Bay and, and Paikakariki and then Raumati Beach, so that whole strip including Queen Elizabeth Park, we've surveyed with wildlife detector dogs, we've surveyed by walking along the beach at dawn looking for penguin footprints going back out to sea and 
also with a mail drop to 700 coastal homes. And we know that there are some small groups of penguins here, so they're struggling to hold on, but we have a great natural source on Kapiti Island. So what you're hoping to do is to build the numbers up along the coast? Yes, yes. This is an exciting part of the project because it would be really different for us to become known for little blue penguins and, and to be able to provide a sanctuary for them. When did you put these nest boxes out? They went out in February. So have you been back in? Have you seen whether any of your boxes have occupants? We haven't seen any sign of occupation yet. How many boxes have you put out? 37. <laughs> and the survey that you did to all these households, have you got any replies back? Are people seeing penguins? Does anyone have a penguin under their house? We've had about 12 replies, and these are from people who have penguins. Most people love it and are very tolerant of the noise and smell, and that's given us a little bit more of an idea of, of the numbers. You know, mostly the, the homes will have at least a pair or a two pairs in the shed or underneath the shed or in the, in the garden somewhere where there are rocks or trees, stumps for them to hide. My name's Jean Fleming and I'm the team leader for the streams part of the project. What we're trying to do in this part of the project is grow riparian planting alongside what used to be drainage ditches but are gradually becoming streams. These sites are largely in the farm at Queen Elizabeth Park. So it's very definitely farmland. There's lots of paradise ducks swinging around at the moment, which is really lovely. And ahead of us I can see lots of plant protectors along the side of, as you say, something that looks fundamentally like a ditch. <laughs> it's a very ambitious project. The basic objective is to get shade over these, essentially these steep-sided uh, ditches. And we're doing it in three ways. So the site we can see in front of us with all the plant protectors, these are Matsudana willows. And I say... Oh, so you're not doing all natives? No. Well, John really wanted instant shade. That was his idea. The quicker we could get shade over these ditches, the quicker we could inhibit the growth of algae. At the bottom of these ditches, this one doesn't look as though it's got steep sides at the moment because it's quite full of water and there's quite a lot of reed and stuff growing in it. But there's at least a metre of sediment and filamentous algae down there, which is really dangerous. And so in the summer, it just becomes a bog and it becomes very anaerobic at night when all the plant matter is, you know, using the oxygen, basically, so and not pr producing oxygen by photosynthesis. So Do you have any fish in there at the moment? Did they find anything? What we found was there, are, there were a really good species range of fish in the uh, Whareroa stream up closer to the nursery. So we, we got giant cockapoo, we got banded cockapoo, we got three species of, of bully, so blue-finned and red-gilled and common bully. We got kura and we got short-finned eels. We didn't find any long fins. But this one with the willows, we found one gasping enunga on the top. So obviously when they come up here, um, it's too an anoxic for them basically at the moment. But at least the banks are beginning to lower and the willows are growing magnificently. So we've got two metres now 
will have three if not four meters by the next summer next spring end of spring and um, our planting scheme for this year is to put um, a lot of natives in and around and under we've got over 1500 plants that um, we will start planting out so and your 10-year vision for this place and 10 years is probably yes. not unreasonable no it's be... not unreasonable there'll be a, a dense bush that may still have a few tagasasti tree lucerns poking poking out but will be definitely growing like you can see on the Whareroa. The, the whole idea is to get lots of not only tall shady trees but also a whole lot of habitat habitat for skinks and geckos for example it's actually a dream i think john lancashire had a dream and it's quite nice to be to start with stuff that that has such a potential shall we say or is such a challenge i mean you can look at it two ways but the one thing that you do notice is that the birds are already coming back and so it's just going yeah. to keep on getting better? Yeah, it'll keep on getting better. And if we can get Tui down these little riparian strips in even in five years, I'll be very, very pleased. A big thanks to Jean Fleming, Steve Whitton, Paul Callister, Michael Stace, Jan Nisbet, Sue Blakey and Gay Hay for showing me around the Kapiti Coast Biodiversity Project. And good luck to you and all the other volunteers out there who are bringing nature back to mainland New Zealand. If you'd like to listen to that story again or check out the photo gallery, then head along to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We're on Twitter and Facebook at RNZ Science, and you can email us at ourchangingworld at radionz.co.nz. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.